Welcome to the Mercy Commons podcast. Thank you for joining us today. We trust that the Word of God encourages you and that the Holy Spirit empowers you. Thirteen years ago, um, in the evening, uh, we were gathering in a space called the Hope, well, it's still around, uh, Hope Theater, and uh, we were kind of deciding what it would look like to have a community planted in uh, Fullerton. And so we would meet in the evenings, and there'd be strange things that would happen, like we would have these weird talent shows, and, um, and we would arrive uh, on the Sunday to preach, and there would be the whole backdrop of um, uh, the susicle, and just, a, it, it, was, it was an intriguing time. But one of the most intriguing times is, is um, we were sitting there, and I was, I was on the front row, and a good friend of mine, um, Mark Tapping, who was on eldership at the time, he was preaching, um, and this man walked down all the way from the bottom. He was led in by Saxon, you know, so. Um, and, uh, and he walked all the way down, and he was in ho- uh, hospital scrubs. And he walked all the way down to the front, and there was a stage, not like this. And, and he stood there for a little bit. And, um, and then as Mark was speaking, he said, no, 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 I have something to say about that. And we kind of looked at Mark, and Mark kind of looked at us, and Mark was kind of a creative preacher, so we were like, maybe this is part of his thing. Let's see where this goes, you know? And so kind of we just sat there in the front just looking at this. And then Mark's like, you know, can you handle this? Well, then about six guys got up and escorted this man out of the side entrance. Uh, As it turns out, this man was homeless. He had been released from a 5150 hold and had walked into our congregation. So we didn't know what to do, and so Ryan Kennedy and I decided we were going to take him out for dinner. So we took him to a Thai restaurant, right? (laughs) Why did we take him to a Thai restaurant? Because we didn't want to profile, and so we thought kind of the easiest thing we can do is is do a Thai restaurant. So those of you that are familiar with Fullerton, uh, there is a tiny little Thai restaurant. There, There used to be a Big Lots Um, And that's where we went and we bought him some stuff and and we had dinner around the table at the Thai restaurant. And I learned quite a lot from Joseph. Um, I learned that he'd been homeless for a long time. I learned that he um, was within his right mind and he he had actually, every now and then, uh, would check himself in for 5150 hold. And that means that they will keep you if you're a danger to yourself or to anyone else. And he would get a meal and he would have a shower um, and then he would carry on. Um, it's, it's one of the strangest meals I've had, to be honest. Um, it's one of the meals where I've learned the most, um, just about the concept of how judgmental I, I can be. Because I'll be honest, right at the beginning, I was, I was worried. Uh, I was fearful uh, what was going to happen, which is why I took Ryan Kennedy with me, because he's, he's, he's quite a big, stocky guy, you know? Um, and, and then we asked him um, a number of different things. Obviously, we wanted to help him, and, and you know, we learned a lot. It's like, no, don't give me canned food. Give me, like, you know, the tuna that comes in those packets. Socks are really helpful, a lot of toothpaste, some soap. And so we went there, and, and we bought those things. We dropped him off at the shelter. I've never seen him since. I do remember, though, Ryan calling Stephanie and saying, hey, Steph, can you bring some clothes? Because Joseph was a big guy, kind of like, like uh, Ryan. And so Kennedy brought this, this huge bag of clothes. Ryan opens the clothes, and they're all the clothes that Stephanie hates that Ryan wears. 
it's now too late because here are the clothes. So, yeah, all of those kinds of things. Robert Karras says that in Luke's gospel, Jesus is either going to a meal, at a meal, or leaving from a meal. Uh, Jesus' missional strategy was the Son of Man came eating and drinking. In Luke 5, he's eating with tax collectors at Levi's house. In Luke 7, he's anointed at Simon the Pharisee's house by a woman. In Luke 9, he's feeding the 5,000. In Luke 10, he's eating with Mary and Martha. In 11, he condemns the Pharisees at a meal that the Pharisees invited him to. In Luke 14, he's at a meal where he urges his followers to invite others to a meal and the kinds of people that should be invited to a banquet. In Luke 15, he tells the parable of the banquets. In Luke 19, he invites himself to Zacchaeus' house for a meal. In Luke 22, it is the Lord's Supper. In Luke 24, he has... uh, dinner with two of the disciples that don't know that it's him after his resurrection. And in Luke 24, he eats with all of his disciples um, as he tells them to wait in Jerusalem. Jesus engages in this strategic hospitality over and over using the common and beautiful tool of the table to pursue mankind. And the fact that food was used not only as a literary device, but that Luke intentionally records these moments of sitting and eating shows us the earthly, gritty reality of the kingdom that Jesus was bringing. The new kingdom is not about ideas or philosophies. It is as practical and as concrete as the food that you're putting into your mouth. Everywhere Jesus went, he brought the table with him, and he offered his words and himself as food and drink. I love our life group, um, but in, in the, that's right, it's a, it's a complicated life group to gather around the table, you know. We have meat lovers. So Kayla and I, we smoke meat, we follow meat smokers on our Instagram, we show each other these things and tag each other in these things. We have vegans in our life group, you know. We have people, that's right, we have people that are allergic to chicken. I don't know how that happens. I know that you cannot like chicken, but I don't, I've never heard of anyone being allergic to chicken. And one, one of the joys that we have is as we gather for this communal meal, the simple act of gathering and honoring one another as we provide different opportunities for people to eat is something that Karen encouraged us in this morning. Love one another, prefer one another, bear with one another. Let me tell you, I've tried the most interesting substitutes just being part of our life group. Some of them work, like the zucchini meatballs. Where's, where is she? There we go. The zucchini meatballs, they were, they were good. But the pulled pork substitute, we're not going to do that again, right? Okay? The challenge is in our individualistic and in our convenience culture, we are losing the table of grace. Um, people are more focused on, on what it is that they want and our own individual tastes that we've lost the ability to be inclusive when it comes to our tables. You know, I was, uh, I was discipled within the context of something called dining room Christianity. Now, Chris Venon, one of my leaders and mentors, always talked about dining room table Christianity. And I When I think about it, I was talking with Stephanie earlier this morning. I mean, I remember Saxon and Steph sitting around our table before they were married. 
This was like 13 years ago. I remember sitting down with him, going through, through difficulties, through premarital, um, through premarital counseling, through difficulties in their marriage. I remember Karen being a doula at the birth of Steph's children. Now, I, I remember marrying them. But you know what for me is more profound than any of those things is that now they have a table of grace. And now there are people gathered around their table that they are offering the same kind of love and affection and discipleship that they received, they're offering the same thing. In our home, we have this couch, and, and people tend to sit on the couch and cry. And I remember someone coming down, and they were about to sit on this couch, and oh, I'm not sitting on that couch. That's the crying couch, you know? <laughs> We've seen lives transformed. We've seen repentance offered, forgiveness offered. Uh, we've seen people confess things. We, we've seen marriages put together. We've seen some of the most amazing things around the table of grace. And hopefully, as we go through Luke, one of the things that we're, we're going to be able to do, both individually, and this, this, this is not about being married. This is not about having a family. This is about creating a space of grace where you invite other people into, and, as we'll learn, where you invite yourself to other people's tables of grace. So we're going to look at the context of who is writing this book to whom and what is it about. So Luke 1 verses 1 to 4. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished or fulfilled among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered to us, it seemed good to me having followed all things closely for some time past to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. In Acts 1 verse 1, the same writer, Luke, says, in the first book, he's talking about Luke, in the first book, O Theophilus, I dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. So we know that Luke is kind of part one of the Luke-Acts series, and Luke is the ancient biography of what is the most important aspects of Jesus' life and practice and personhood. And the Holy Spirit through Luke has compiled this diligently. We can trust this account. And those of you that are, are not members of the faith yet, this is, a, this is a, a biography about a historical person in a historical place, and this is a historical faith. This is not an idea about how we should live, but this is us delving into the biography of the God-man, Jesus Christ. Now, Luke was a second-generation Christian, which means that he was not an actual eyewitness of what Jesus was fulfilling in the time, of, in the time when Jesus was alive on earth. He was a Gentile, which is important, a physician by profession, and he ended up traveling uh, with Paul, one of the later apostles. Now, as a Gentile, he has a unique perspective on the impact of who Jesus is and Jesus' words on Gentile life, as well as his portrayal and importance of women, which is not coincidental because by the time this letter was written, there were churches that were supported by, housed by, there were women leaders and influential women in the early spread of the church. Now, Theophilus is, who is Theophilus? Well, Theophilus means friend of God, yeah, great. Um, that's what happens when you're Greek, you know those things. Um, Theophilus means friend of God, but, but we don't really know who he was. There's a couple of theories. The one is that he was a patron and, and that he wanted an accurate account of who Jesus was and what had happened. The other one, which is what I subscribe to, is that Theophilus was Paul's lawyer when he was on trial in Rome. 
And part of the reason that Luke and Acts were written, and specifically Acts was written, was as a defense for Paul, who was being tried as a seditionist, as a, as a rebel, as an enemy of Rome, to show that this was not um, the purpose of Jesus and the purpose of Christianity or the way. And actually, this, this was the continuation of what Rome had allowed for so many centuries before with regards to the Jewish nation. So, what is it about? The book of Luke is about pursuit and fulfillment. For the Son of Man came to seek and save what was lost. That is kind of the core verse of Luke, Luke 19, verse 10. Jesus' stated mission was pursuit, to pursue the lost and to fulfill the covenant promise that all nations would have the opportunity to be blessed through a new king and by the establishment of a new kingdom. Luke is written to prove this statement and, and uh, Acts is written to also further prove that Jesus did not come to establish a competitive kingdom to Rome. He was not a rebel. He was not an anarchist or an enemy of Rome. And, and this is proven by the content of the book, the context of it, and also John the Baptizer's proclamation and the audience that John the Baptizer is speaking to. What on earth are you talking about because you're going so fast? So what's happening is that Generally, in the beginning, Luke is introduced with the, um, the story of John the baptizer and Jesus' birth. And so we're going to skip over that because when it comes time to Christmas, we'll kind of jump back into that. So now we're in the part of the story uh, where in the middle of the desert, there is this man called John the baptizer, and he is talking about repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. What kind of kingdom is he talking about? And so this is where we pick up. Things are clearly not the way that they should be. God's chosen people in His promised land are not experiencing the kind of blessing that God said that they would experience. There is arrogance, there is poverty, there's equality, and there is oppression. Luke 3 verse 10 to 14 says, and, and, so, and so John is saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then they're saying, well, what shall we do? And he answered them, whoever has two tunics, shirts, is to share one with them who has one. Whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and, he, and said, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also came to him. And we, what shall we do? And he said to them, Do not extort money from anyone by threats or false accusation and be content with your wages. What's interesting to me in this is that John doesn't take a political side. He doesn't actually say, Stop being a tax collector. He doesn't say, stop being a soldier. He, what he does is we see this both with Pharisees, with faithful followers of Jesus, with Gentiles, and with members of the oppressive class. He's saying there is a new kingdom coming that is much broader and bigger than that, and the issue is about what's in here. The issue is also who rules this new kingdom. And so it's interesting to me the way in which, um, in the way in which John responds to these people. John's baptism was unique in that moment. Uh, it was a sign of cleansing and purification. People would come to him and, and they would say, repent. He would say, repent of what you've done. And as, a, as an act of repentance, what he would do is he would baptize them as a symbol of them being cleansed. It was not yet a symbol of followership and devotion to Jesus. Not in this moment. 
John's message and baptism is a clue to who the true children of Abraham are. Because at the beginning of the chapter, the Pharisees are saying to him, but we are children of Abraham. And actually John redirects them and says, no, no, no. God is able to call children of Abraham. And children of Abraham are those that believe in the one that he sent. The blessing of Abraham would come through the line of Abraham and David, and that's where Jesus comes in. Jesus' message and ministry would amplify the truth that the new kingdom of Jesus is not based on ethnicity, but on a life devoted to Jesus and fueled by the Spirit. In other words, Jesus' people are those who love God and love their neighbor. That is what Jesus will come to bring. But today, baptism is a sacrament. And what is a sacrament? A sacrament is an outward sign of an inward conviction. It means that those that have been baptized have repented, they have been cleansed. There's a sense of belonging, empowering, there's a sense of behaving and mission. That's what baptism means for us. And so the narrative shifts from John's preaching and proclamation to now Jesus comes on to the scene. Luke 3 verse 15. As the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with an unquenchable fire. And so with many other exhortations, he preached the good news, and sound like good news, that preached the good news to the people. But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, what does that mean? It means that Herod had taken his brother's wife and was sleeping with her, and John was like, you cannot do this. This is wrong. And for all the other things that Herod had done, added this to them. In other words, the imprisonment of John just added to the list of everything that Herod had done and locked John up in prison. Now, when, people, when all the people were baptized and when Jesus had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came out from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. And here we get the glimpse of the inclusively exclusive Jesus. And John prophesies the tension of Jesus' earthly ministry. That there will be this inclusion in the way in which Jesus interacts and engages with people. But there will be this exclusivity about who is part of the kingdom and who is not. Jesus' ministry and message was not and is not one of universal inclusion. It is one of universal invitation. Jesus' ministry was not and is not one of universal inclusion. But one of universal invitation. Jesus is our rescuing pursuer, and the one who separates. He is our sacrificial savior and the judge. The baptism of the Holy Spirit, only Jesus can baptize us in the Holy Spirit, which provides the cleansing of our soul, but also the empowerment of us to be able to function in the way that John is saying that we should function, which is impossible without the Holy Spirit, and it bestows ownership on us. This is my son. 
What we understand now through baptism is that ownership has shifted because in the past it, began, it, it belonged to the ethnic Israel and the sign of that was circumcision. Now, who belongs to the church of God? The sign of that is baptism. The absolute necessity of being baptized in the Holy Spirit is because we cannot live the kind of life that Jesus is calling us to live without being empowered by the Holy Spirit. We cannot be comforted by the one that comforts We cannot be sent out on mission by the one who sends us out. Even Jesus is saying to his disciples, wait until you've received the Holy Spirit. Now, what is the baptism of fire? It's a baptism of purity. And and he clarifies what the baptism of fire is this. In verse 17, he says, his winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor, to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with an unquenchable fire. So what is this idea of a winnowing fork. So can, can we throw that up there, Grace? So this is clearly not kind of first century, right? Um, maybe that's a giant's cap, who knows? So, um, so what is he doing? He's grabbing the wheat that was harvested and he's throwing it up into the air and because there's a gust of wind, the wheat, the kernel of the wheat is heavier, it falls to the ground and the chaff gets blown by the wind. Um, and that's the kind of fork. That's, that's what John is saying about Jesus, is he comes with an instrument of separation in his hand. And he's coming to determine who is the wheat and who is the chaff. And so that is what this is indicative of. Fire, again, is indicative of judgment and separation and purification. And the, and the problem that we do with the tension of the inclusively exclusive Jesus is we try and soften the one over the other. There's no reason to do that. There's no reason to soften the one over the other or, or to emphasize the one over the other. That Jesus was and is actively pursuing. He is actively saving the lost. He is healing those who are unwell. He is including the excluded while at the same time completely uncompromising about his message. Ultimately, Jesus was killed for his inclusive lifestyle and exclusive message. That's why he was crucified. Now, throughout the book of Luke, you will see examples of this winnowing fork. You will see the parable of the wheat and the tares, which is slightly different. Now, wheat and chaff, chaff is like the husk of what is important. You know, the, everything that is being thrown away is, is what is not important. Now, wheat and tares is different in the sense that wheat is one kind of grain and tares is a different kind. And so there's the parable of basically saying there will be a separation between wheat and tares. There will be a separation between sheep and goats. There will be a separation between those that are wearing the wedding garment and those that are not. There will be a separation of those that are ready and those that are not. Consistently, throughout the book of Luke, we will see the inclusively exclusive Jesus not only gather people that no one else wanted to gather with, but proclaim a very uncompromising message and truth. This is a very unpopular message. It's not, it's not a popular message to actually say, no, there is an in and an out. It's not for us to decide who is wheat and who is chaff. It is for us to echo the words of Jesus that no one comes to the Father unless they come through Jesus. 
Now, our tables of grace, our spaces of grace, they have to be safe, they have to be inclusive, they have to be inviting, while at the same time, they can be those things and be uncompromising about the truth of who Jesus is. So, how do we prepare, and how do we invite others, and how do we attend tables of grace? Well, we do it in the way that Jesus showed us in the context of His baptism. We do it with a humble obedience with a dependence on the Spirit, and with a sense of deep affirmation. Humble obedience and identification. When Jesus comes to John, whom John says, I am not the Messiah, one is greater than me, whose whose sandal I'm not worthy to tie is going to come. He is the Messiah. He will baptize you in the Holy Spirit and, and with fire. And Jesus arrives to be baptized by John. Now, Matthew, an actual eyewitness, a disciple of Jesus gives us an eyewitness account of what happened here. Then Jesus came from Galilee, from Jordan to John, to be baptized by him. Now, John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and you come for me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. What Jesus was not saying is that he was a sinner that needed to be cleansed. What Jesus was not doing was minimizing the act of repentance that the tax collectors, those of Israel, the the rest of the people that were coming to, to John, minimizing the reason that they needed to repent. No, what Jesus was doing was setting an example for us. It was not a necessity for Jesus, but it is a necessity for us. For anyone that claims to be a follower of Jesus, the sacramental act of baptism is a necessity. Is there something holy in the water? No, there isn't. Are you not right with God unless you've been baptized in water? No, there isn't. But the more important thing is one of declaration, of actually saying, this is who I am. I am a child of God, and I belong to the body of Christ. Make sense? Our baptism is an admission that we were rebels wanting our own way. And this act is declaring that I am submitting to Jesus, desiring to follow him. So before Jesus sits down with a tax collector, before he heals a Roman centurion servant, before he dignifies a Gentile, Gentile woman with a touch, before he touches and heals a leper, he is saying, I want to be close to the people that recognize they need help. I want to be here. I want people to understand that there is help. And there is help, most importantly, to those who know that they can't help themselves. That's what I want to model. This is a massive step of obedience. And you would think that steps of obedience lead to massive blessing. And the next thing that happens to Jesus out of the step of obedience is he's led by the Spirit into the desert and he's tempted for 40 days and nights by the devil. I want to say this, there there is a massive blessing to obedience, but there are also trials. And the reality of the Christian faith, and those of us that have been in the Christian faith for a while will know this, there is blessing and there is trial, but there is also blessing in trial. And one of the things that we need to come to terms with is that when we're obedient, we, we expect this kind of exchange. Okay, God, I will do this or I won't do that. And he's like, but 
That's what you're supposed to do. This is good for you to be able to do this. A friend of mine, Daniel Yu, some of you will remember him. Um, he was a, a good old Presbyterian, uh, grew up in the Presbyterian church, and he was baptized as an infant. And uh, when he came to Southlands, I remember sitting down with, uh, with Daniel. Daniel is way smarter than me. Um, yeah, way smarter than me. This is, this is where someone says, no, Nick, that's not true. No? Okay. Daniel is way... Daniel is way smarter than me. He's a lawyer. He went to, no, Berkeley. Um, I, I can only remember the football team. It's Cal. So, um, and, uh, and so we were sitting down there, and we were talking about the necessity of being baptized as a confession of your faith, as a confessing adult. And I remember talking about that and talking about that, and then ultimately we were sitting, I remember we were in Orange at Felix's at the Cuban uh, restaurant there. Very good, by the way. Um, yeah, it's good, Nicole. And, um, and I remember there was a moment where Daniel said, okay, you're right, it's pride. And I was shocked. Shocked because he modeled something that, that I think is deeply significant, is, is the ability of us being able to engage with each other with a sense of, can I actually have my mind changed by this? I think what Daniel didn't know is that this would be the first act of obedience um, that would lead to many other more difficult acts of obedience. So Daniel, as an adult lawyer, uh, Cal, I mean, Berkeley trained, great job submitting himself now to baptism as an adult. That's the first act of obedience. Second act of obedience is God calls him to shepherd God's people as a marketplace elder. Second act of obedience. Third act of obedience, God calls him to plant a church in Thailand. Has this been a piece of cake for Daniel? It has not. But has it been the thing that has made him the most alive? It has. And so for us, our little acts of obedience lead to blessing, but not absent of trial. Okay, that wasn't in my notes, so where are we? <laughs> Jesus modeled that as fully God and fully man, he still needed the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. He still needed the Spirit to come upon him in a way that empowered him because it would be unfair for him to call us to a life of purpose and passion and mission if all he did was kind of jump into his God side every time he was going to do things. He's like, no, this kind of life is possible for you through the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. And the way that Jesus calls us to live is impossible without being empowered by the Holy Spirit. It's also deeply foolish. In order for us to be effective on mission, we need a current and continual empowerment of the Holy Spirit. In order for us to be effective on mission, we need a current and continual experiential sense of belonging to God. We need to be comforted and commissioned, loved and led, and we need the Spirit of God to spiritually form us and to send us on mission. Remember, those two things are not exclusive. The Spirit of God cannot effectively spiritually form you unless you're on mission. You can't be effectively on mission unless you are being spiritually formed. And the Spirit-empowered life is a massive theme throughout Luke that we'll pick up in the following weeks. But lastly, affirmation. 
You are my son. There is the sense of identity before utility. Now, utility is not unimportant. Sean sent me this card. It kind of wounded me a little. Um, I actually, I have it here. It's like, you know, so just bear with me. And um, this is his card. It's like, dear diary, uh, while in line to order my third cup of coffee, the woman in front of me started choking. It was scary, but thankfully someone opened another register. <laughs> so, so, why did Sean give me that? Because he understands that efficiency is kind of really high on my priority list, you know? Um, but he also wrote a paragraph making sure, because Sean is the kind of shepherd that he is, that I shouldn't take this too seriously, and, and that I do love people, and you know, and all those kinds of things. It's not unimportant, the kinds of things that God has called us to. It's not unimportant to have goals. It's not even unimportant within the context of our Christian life to say, God, I, I want to be able to be used. I want to be able to see this. God came and rescued us, but also gave us focus. He gave us meaning. He gave us joy and purpose. But we're joining God in the renewal and restoration of all things. We are invited participants, not necessary players. And that is part of the joy that, that we receive. But before Jesus does anything, before he preaches any sermon, before he heals anybody, he is fueled by the love and affirmation of his Father. Because when we are deeply loved, we are deeply motivated. It's not, I have to do this. It's, I want to do this. And at our tables of grace, we as children of God have the privilege to affirm the inherent value of every human being while we remind them that Jesus is still pursuing them. This is assuming that, that they do not know Jesus. That they too can be transformed from marred and broken images of the living God to children of God just like us. We also, in our spaces of grace, have the privilege of reminding Christ's followers what Spurgeon said about our identity. That sonship is a thing which all the infirmities of our flesh and all the sins into which we are hurried by temptation can never violate or weaken. In other words, translation, there is nothing you can do that will change your status as a daughter or son of the living God. And it's not in a meeting like this where we'll be able to say that face to face with someone. It's at a space of grace where we'll be able to do that. We also receive attention and affection. This is his heart. You're always welcome. That's what Maddie reminded us this morning. This is his heart. You're always welcome. Jesus models that as, as children of God, we have the attention and affection of our Father. Now, attention is a tricky thing. For some of us, we, we long for the attention of our Father, spiritual or physical, and some of us got too much of that attention because it doesn't always mean affection. It can mean, why didn't you do this? Why didn't you do that? You should have done this better. So, so attention does not necessarily mean affection. But with God, through Jesus... God is constantly attentive of us and fully affectionate of us at every moment. I mean, the, 
Again, attention is a weird thing. Those of you that, um, that have traveled internationally, what is the one thing you don't want at customs? You don't want anyone's attention. Now, I don't understand why this happens to Karen, but when she goes through those things, she starts to sweat, her face goes red, <laughs> Like, she looks the most guilty person in the world. Like, she's carrying some kind of bomb or something, you know? And I'm like, will you just relax? She's like, I don't, is it looking at me? I don't. <laughs> Let's be honest. There are times we don't want attention, right? There are times where we, where the kinds of things that we do in order to get attention are so lame and desperate. I was on vacation with my girls who were down the Florida Keys, my girls have grown into amazingly beautiful women, Nish. And as we're walking down the pier, womanish, like woman and ish. It's not a new word. Oh, no. Sorry. There is a translation glossary available at the end of this, you know? Anyway, we're walking down the pier, and I see these teenage boys waiting for my girls to walk and, like, do backflips, and, you know? And I'm like, this is so lame. And then I remember doing the same thing, just desperate to get attention, you know, whether it was from a potential girlfriend or like, Dad, did you see me do that? You know, and so there's this thing in us where, where we want, there's certain people we don't want attention from, there's certain people we want attention from. This is the thing that Jesus is modeling in this moment as the heavens open. He has the attention and affection of his father for no other reason other than he belongs to him. The father's affirmation of Jesus' identity is a bedrock reality that he functions out of and not in pursuit of. Man, how different our lives would be if that were true of us. This is truth. You are a child of God through the sacrifice of Jesus empowered by His Spirit, and you live in the constant attention and affection of God because salvation means you are united with Christ. You are one with Him. Patrick, you can come up. Paul puts it another way. Paul says that all who are led by God's Spirit are God's sons and daughters, and that you didn't receive a spirit of slavery to lead you back again into fear, but you received a spirit that shows you that you are adopted as his children. With his spirit, you cry out, Abba, Father, a, a tender affection towards your dad. The same spirit agrees with our spirit that we are God's children. You know, for, for many of us, this is a, a difficult thing to wrap our minds around, this, this idea of being father to the extent that I am consistently in the mind of God and consistently being loved. Ryan last week said one of, the, one of the most important things about children in the adoptive process is do I matter and can I trust? And that's a question that we ask as adults. That never really goes away. Do I matter? You are my son. You are my daughter. I know this is tricky for us. I know that for many of us in this room, I mean, even, even for me, there's a sense in which, man, I have failed so many times as a father. 
to be able to model the attention and affection of God in the way that God does that. There are so many ways in which I failed, but I can do this. Even though I have failed as a father, I can still go to my father and say, I need help. I need empowerment by the Spirit. I'd like us to think about how to respond to this. I know this can be tender or tricky because of our poor earthly role models, but maybe some of us need to be healed from the pain of pursuing the attention and the affection of people we thought would confirm our worth, but actually ended up diminishing it. All the time and energy that I spent pursuing this person, these people, so that I could understand who I am, and I actually am less because of that. Maybe there's an opportunity for you to identify the specific sins of your father. Now, trust me when I tell you, this is an awkward one as a father. Why am I asking you to do this? I'm not asking you to do this in order for you to keep a record of wrongs. I'm saying it could be healthy to look at the specific sins committed against you by your father so that you can ask the Spirit for help in forgiving your father. Because true freedom comes from forgiveness. Identifying the wrongs that we suffer help us know what it is that we're asking forgiveness for. It also helps us not to shape God into our Father's image. And lastly, for some of you, maybe it is actual physical baptism. Maybe the story of Daniel where, where you, you were baptized as a child or you, even, you haven't even come to faith or this idea of making a declaration as an adult about who Jesus is and therefore who you are is something that you've pushed aside. Maybe today's the day where you say, actually, I'm, I'm going to do that. Won't you close your eyes with me, if you will? Don't you hear the voice of the Father? You are my child, my daughter, my son. I created the heavens and the earth. I created angels and heavenly beings. I also created you, and you, not the splendor of the heavens or the earth or the angels, images me the way you do. I chose you and I choose you. You. You have my attention and my affection. I'm proud of you. You represent me well. I love you. I like you. There is nothing that you have done that will ever change my opinion of you because that is what the cross was for. I created you to be with me. I came to pursue you, to rescue you, to forgive you and give you purpose. You are my child, and in you, I'm well pleased. Thank you for listening to the Mercy Commons podcast. If you enjoyed today's content, please rate us and hit subscribe. And if you'd like to learn more about us, visit our website at mercycommons.church.